This podcast is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. It not only educates its students about today's communication industry, but it produces innovative leaders. For more information, go to ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with an eclectic group of people. Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. Today we're talking with Dr. Amir Farnood, an assistant professor of chemical, biomolecular, and biomedical engineering at the Russ College of Engineering and Technology at Ohio University. He talks with us about the field of nanotechnology and some of its applications in the biomedical field. You're the expert. I'm not. Most of my audience has no idea what nanotechnology is. And some of us may have an inkling of what it is. Can you define it for us? Any particle or anything that has one dimension less than a hundred nanometers that's called a nano material or a nano object or a nano particle so it's the the size that that makes this um uh, that defines this um so less than a hundred nanometers nanometers okay one nanometer is one billion times less than a meter so it's um you know to give you a, a a length of scale if you think about how fast our nails grow, our nails grow one nanometer per second. Um, wow. Just to kind of give you an idea about... You, know, you say it that way, it sounds fast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> about the length of scale. Okay, so. so before I talked with you, I looked up some things. And, and one example I saw, I just want to test this as reality, said if a marble is a nanometer, then one meter would be the size of the earth. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> is, yeah. is that yeah, a good visual? Right. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. As I understand, this part of science started back in the late 1950s, mm-hmm. early 1960s. Mm-hmm. Is, is that right? How did it get started? Yeah, there's uh there's a famous uh talk by uh, Richard Feynman, who won the Nobel Prize in physics. So he stumbled across this theory, or he just posited this theory and he then researched? Yeah, he suggested that this can be, uh, you know, there is, uh, the title of his talk is, uh, there's plenty of room at the bottom, saying that we're, you know, we're focused on things that are on the meter scale or centimeter scale, or you know, but there is, uh, you can go much, much smaller there's a lot of wonderful things you can do. And in fact, in his talk, he says in the, the year 2000, people will laugh at us that it took us until the 1960s to think about nano. It's already too late, essentially. And he actually even came up with a challenge. He asked if someone can uh, write a sentence on, uh, on the head of a pin saying that, you know, they can, you can modify things at a very small scale. Very small scale. Yeah. And he actually said he's going to pay $1,000 back then to someone who could do that. And someone was able to do that, I think, a year later or so. 
So did this discovery or theory of, of Feynman's, did it take off right away and, and scientists and physicists and everybody glommed onto this and said, wow, this is a great new breakthrough, we got to get into this? Or was it something that sort of took a little time? I think it is started, you know, it's like a lot of other things in science, it's very gradual. Mm-hmm. The uh, the progress toward it was very gradual. I think when I think about nanotechnology, I think in the '90s and 2000s is when it's really when it really took off. I guess what I mean by taking off is when you start thinking about applications. But before you can think about applications, there's a lot of basic science things that need you, to be done. You have found. to understand the basic science. Exactly. And it, at this point, or at that point back then, you had to discover. The, exactly. The, the, yeah. the, the basic science. Saying what something was was a whole lot different than isolating it or seeing it uh, or, or far from manipulating it right. in, into right. anything right. applicable. Right. Correct? Right. The other, you know, it's, I started my research lab here about three years ago. And about a year after I started my lab, I could make nanoparticles in my lab. So just think about, you know, it's been about 50 years since that talk, but now you can start a lab and about a year later you can make nanoparticles. It's, uh, now it's become commonplace for research labs to make nanoparticles, characterize nanoparticles, buy nanoparticles. But in the 1960s, there was essentially nothing. You know, you, you couldn't go to a vendor and say, hey, I want this and this nanoparticle. Now it's come to a point where you can just synthesize the particles that you like in your lab and use them. Okay. So let's move forward from the discovery and and this sort of ruminating through science mm. and a lot of discovery. Uh, you're now talking about nanoparticles. Mm-hmm. And you said you make them in your lab. What I'm feeling, what I'm hearing is that this is sort of custom designed right. nanoparticles. Right. Is, is right. that it? That is correct. Yes. So instead of just having them in nature or having them uh, exist mm-hmm. in other things, mm-hmm. uh, science has jumped to the point now of making designer Exactly. Nanoparticles. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, if you think about it, we have proteins in our body that are in the nanometer size range, right? So nano objects already exist in nature everywhere, right? Um, Now we're trying to make particles that we like because we want them to have the properties that we like, right? So it's... Instead of just random. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So, um, and and the follow up to that would be the the more you can design a particle, you can design it and create it for a specific purpose, correct. as opposed to just how they appear randomly in in nature or in our bodies, correct, or, or in objects, right, right. And right. I assume nanoparticles are everywhere. They um they are. I mean, if you, t- I mean, we're inhaling air, and in air, there are so many particles now, right? We refer to them as aerosols or airborne particles. But if you think about it, in the exhaust that comes out of every car, there's a whole bunch of nanoparticles, 
right? That we all inhale every day. And God help you if you live in Los Angeles. Yeah. Small, <laughs> 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 or in a major city. Yeah. That has, yeah. Or in China. Yeah. You're, you're inhaling more and more, and that's the field, and, you know, how the particles you inhale are going to affect uh, your lung function. Okay. So at some point in this progression of science, somebody had to, for the first time, go, huh, if I can design a nanoparticle in a certain way and create them, I can do the following. Mm -hmm. I can change this. I can support that. Mm -hmm. Who was that and how did that come about? Um, I don't know if there is one person you can attribute okay. these right. to. Um, I'll, I'll make this a little bit more specific to the field that I work on because sure. I, that's kind of what I know better. But, I, um, you know, we used to have um, polymers, um, and we use polymers almost everywhere now. Uh, we used to have polymers that uh, degrade, right? So you, have, you can have um, a polymer that you can put in water, and after a while, the polymer will start degrading. Okay. So when the field of nanotechnology uh, started taking off, some of the, the people who were um, quote-unquote polymer people thought, okay, now I can make a polymeric nanoparticle, and this nanoparticle is going to degrade. Okay, because I know my polymers were, was going to degrade. Mm -hmm. Now, let's take this a step further. I can put a drug in this polymeric nanoparticle and inject it into someone. And if I inject it into the body, the polymer will degrade in water, but the drug will be out. Right? So, so it would, the polymer would degrade, but it would release. Exactly. The, the, the drug. Exactly. Exactly. Now, think about this. Um, let's say someone has lung cancer. Okay. And this person has to go do chemo mm -hmm. or radiotherapy or whatever they have to do. But when you expose a, your body to a drug, it is killing all of the cells. It's not just killing cancer cells, right? Right. Which um, is why chemo is so bad, you know, toxic to many people. Um, it's like killing a body poison with a poison. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And radiation is certainly not benign because it radiates uh, all the area around where right. its target is. You can never just radiate cancer. Exactly. Right? Now, imagine if you have someone with lung cancer just inhale nanoparticles that have drugs in them. Right now, you're not exposing the entire body to the drug, right? You're just inhaling particles, and the particles can degrade over time, and the drug will be released in the area of the disease, in a specific area in the body. Exactly, exactly. So it's a big field. Now, I gave you an example for lung cancer, but um, you know, say there is cancer elsewhere in the body, and you want the particles to go and find that area. Right, you search, search it. Exactly, search you want to target it. Mm -hmm. Right now, targeted drug delivery, as the field is known, is is a huge field because people try to modify particle surfaces in a way that they would go find that tumor cell, not the normal cell. Right. So let's take this back um, 
to the fact that you know people start making nanoparticles in their lab. Right? Mm-hmm. You want the particles to have a specific properties that will go find that tumor cell. So you have to make the particles and you have to um, engineer their surface or engineer their properties, right? So that they go find the target that you want. So it, my lay term, you're, you're making seeker nanoparticles. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Nanoparticles that are sort of uh, searchers or scouts. Exactly. They go yeah. out and find yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. That's what you're doing. And so when you do that, you generally have to change the, the surface of the particle, right? Um, one thing that, that makes one thing that makes nanoparticles so uh, unique is the fact that so many of their molecules are at the surface. Okay. Okay. So uh, think about it this way. Uh, obviously, your audience is not here with us, but there is a table here. Yeah. With Venus. What percent of the molecules in this table do you think are at the surface? Maybe 0.1%, right? Yeah. But if you make this table smaller and smaller, the surface will become more and more prominent. If you made this table a lot smaller, you could make a table that has maybe 1% of its molecule at the surface, right? You could make it even smaller and make something that has 10% of its molecule at the surface, right? At that point, the surface will determine a lot of what the table does. Yes. Right? Right. And that's why you can you can take nanoparticles to these different places because they're small, so their surface determines where they go to a large extent, right? So if I could functionalize the surface, if I could engineer the surface in a way that it could bind to a specific target, then I could send the particle there. So it would search, hypothetically, it would search out a cancer cell and it would bind to the cancer cell, and it would destroy or consume, my words, that cancer cell. Correct. Correct. That's the idea. Now, and, and, and with the lung cancer example you used, it was an inhalant. I mm-hmm. assume there are other forms of injectionable right. Uh, right. nanoparticles. Right. So, with, you know, you could – with the, the – I like the term seeker nanoparticles that you you just coined. Uh, the seeker nanoparticles, you could inject them, but they could go find, you know, once they're in circulation, they could go find a target, right? In fact, that's most of um, the applications for particle-based um, delivery of drugs. Okay, but there is there is just one other thing I want to mention here is sure. everything with, you know, when you talk about targeting, you're talking about something you put on the surface, right? But I also want want your audience to think about the core of the particle, right? Um, you can change the polymer with which you make the particle, and that changes the degradation time. How long it will last. Exactly. Uh, It's uh, shelf life. uh, Exactly. How long will it hold your drug? Right. I can make a particle that will have, that will release 10% of its drug in 24 hours. Okay. Okay. I can change the polymer material and make another particle that will release 10% of its drug in a week. Right, so that becomes another thing you can do with a a um, 
with with nanotechnology essentially you can change the release time of your drug so that it, it with one application or one injection you could inject somebody with multiple kinds in in forms of time uh, of these polymers that would release and so some would be immediate some would be mid mid time some would be long term right or if you don't want a person to you know you can't give a lot of drug to one person because of the toxicity that the drug will cause right right but if you have all of this drug in a particle and it's just being released 5% a day then it's not a lot of toxicity Right. So for our audience that that may not be uh, science-based, a way to think about this is uh, anybody who's had uh, a cold or sinus or whatever has taken uh, something that is labeled Mm -hmm. time-released. That you have a 12-hour time-released capsule or or tablet as opposed to a uh, four-hour tablet. And that's, in essence, what you're saying is the same concept, except in one application, you have both the immediate and the intermediate and the long-term. You could if you you wanted to. Yeah. This has got to open up. I mean, my mind is just racing here. Yeah. It, it, it opens up so many possibilities. Right. We, we've talked about cancer, but this is – it's unlimited. It is. It is. And just and just to remember that everything we've discussed is just medical nanotechnology, right? It's op- It opens up possibilities in every field. Literally, yes. It, it, there's so many things you can do with this, which is why there are so many research labs and so many companies now all invested in nanotechnology. We'll be back after this message. The Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University is comprised of five schools each offering a variety of majors and programs for students who want to pursue communication-related careers. From the highly technical information and telecommunication systems to the theoretical communication studies and everything in between, programs in the college offer students both the fundamentals of communication practice and the tenacity and skills to further advance the field. In addition, the college is home to four centers and institutes that enable students to gain hands-on experience and learn new skills. You can learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. In an academic setting, you have sort of a, a foot in both camps in the sense that you do, I assume, Pure research, mm-hmm. uh, which uh, my definition would be that you're exploring things that haven't uh, haven't been explored, and you don't know whether they have an application. But right, you're trying to understand things. Basic better. science, and then you also have a foot in the camp of 
what could we do with this? Right. What, what, how could we help humankind right. uh, with if we tweak this a little bit or if we added something to it or yeah. attached something yeah. to it? Yeah, yeah. It, it, is that is that a good characterization? I think so. Yeah, yeah. You do a little bit of both. I think it, nanotechnology is a very exciting field, and it's just still very yeah. new. <laughs> um, but I think, in a sense, it hasn't reached its full potential, and I think it's because, and this is a whole different discussion, but something that has so much surface area available and is so reactive with so many things could also be toxic to your body could also be toxic to the environment, right? What happens if you inhale a whole bunch of nanoparticles unintentionally, right? Uh, what happens if particles are dumped in a river, right? What happens if the particles are in the air? So there is um, a whole bunch of potential toxic problems um, out of this field. So nanotoxicology is now a field. Uh, people just looking at the toxic effects of nanomaterials. So at least in my lab, we do a little bit of both. We look at, you know, if I make a particle of this size, if I change the surface of a particle, if I change the core material of a particle, is it going to be more toxic? Is it going to be less toxic? What is benign and what is toxic and what makes something toxic? Right. Mm -hmm. So that would be one area. And then another area is, okay, now I know this particle is not toxic. Now can I use this to deliver some sort of drug? Can I use this to diagnose some sort of disease in a way that I could not do without using nanotechnology? So um, there, is a, there is some focus on basic science, but in the end, basic science usually leads to some applications. I'm thinking at the other extreme from what you just said, nanotechnology could also have the potential to be weaponized mm. by uh, malignant forces mm. who would have people <laughs> breathe certain, yeah. certain things for their toxicity. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's not chemical warfare, but it has the potential to be weaponized. Um, probably. To be honest with you, I had never thought of it that way, but I, I could – I mean the problem is any technology, sure, right? Sure, any sure, technology sure. could always be sure. weaponized. Um, and I don't think nanotechnology is any different. Yeah. So let's talk about the ethics of all of this, which I know um, the public gets concerned about the – Somebody out there, I, I guarantee you, somebody out there is going, he's doing cloning. No, we can't do that. And, and you know, that's not what you're doing. But, yeah. but talk about the ethics. Sometimes ethics trail the actual technology. Right. And, and you think about the ethics after the fact. Is there a whole field of uh, tech, nanotechnology ethics? There is uh, – I don't think there is a whole field of nanotechnology ethics, but there is there's one issue, and I think the issue is uh, what I said earlier, not knowing how the particles might be bad for you, not knowing about the potential adverse – health effects 
of these particles. So a few years ago, I think in 2015, a report came out saying that in the U.S., by 2020, we will have 6 million workers in the nanotechnology sector. Six billion? Million. Million. Six, six million. million that's that's even astronomical. Yeah. So if you have six million people exposed to nanoparticles potentially, right, if they are working in the nanotechnology sector, I would imagine they will be exposed, at least some of them will be exposed to nanoparticles, right? So what is the particle potentially doing to them? Right? You have some people using nanoparticles for industrial and medical applications. At the same time, you have some people looking at the potential toxicity of materials, right? Mm -hmm. It's not a field in which we have completed all toxicity studies and then we have taken it to applied. Got it. Right? So I think that is a potential issue. Um, And there are so many labs now, uh, both in industry and academia, that look at toxicity. But if something has been around for only so long, there's only so many things you know about its toxicity. At the same time, it's having all these promises to improve so many things, and you want to use it. Let's let's just walk through an example here. Okay. And you were talking about the, the use of this in fighting uh, cancers. Uh, and you talked about, as I termed it, the time-released uh, mechanism here. Mm-hmm. Uh, you may know that it fights cancer immediately and has an immediate impact. You can see that. It, it's, it's quantifiable. Mm-hmm. The mid-level, you may not have as much certainty. You know that it will fight it, but you don't know what it does to the body between the time it's implanted in the body in whatever form and the time that it goes to its intended purpose. Right. And with longer term ones, that would even be more of an unknown. Right. It, right. It, do that I have is it, completely right? correct. Yeah, because, you know, when you do this in a lab, um, let's just think about, you know, how this goes from a lab to practice and what I'm Telling in a few sentences is going to take many years in practice, okay? But in the lab, you're going to make these particles. You're going to, let's say you put a drug in there and you put a targeting molecule on the surface. So the particle is now ready to go find its target and release its drug, okay? Now, then what do you do? Then you have to try this in some cells that have been isolated and you can grow them in the lab, Okay, so some of your audience might have heard of HeLa cells, um, which came out of a patient, cervical cancer patient, Henrietta uh, Lacks, which is why they're called HeLa cells. And there's a there's actually a book on this, and um, also a I think a v, um, movie on this as well. But just think about similar cells, mm-hmm. cells that have been immortalized, and you can grow in the lab over and over again. Okay, so I made my particle. I can try and see if they will kill the cells, right? But a cell is not is not a body, right? <laughs> then what do you a do? A body is a is compilation of millions, millions of, cells. of cells and millions of different types of cells, right? If you took a cell out of a cervical cancer, you know, it's a, if that's a that's a cell that belongs to a certain organ and is a certain type of cell. What happens if you? do the same if you add the same particle to a different type of cell okay if i add the particle and say 
my particle is not toxic because I added it to this cell and without a drug and it didn't kill the cell. But okay. I can't ever say that this particle is not toxic to any cell unless I try all cells, right? And that's just impossible. So then what do you have to do? Then you have to say, okay, now I have to try this in a uh, more complex um, organism, mm-hmm. right? So then you might uh, try this in uh, mouse, mm-hmm. right? And then you you can look at it and, uh, you know, you, but there is a chronic exposure and then there is an acute exposure and there's so many different ways of toxicity. You know, if you look at the toxicity to the liver, that's not the same as toxicity to the lungs. Correct. Right? And then even if it's not toxic in mice, let's say you've done all your studies, uh, what about a more complex or let's say, is it also not toxic in dogs? Right. Uh, um, and even if you do that, is it not toxic to humans? Right. So it's it takes years and years of studies to be sure that these things are not toxic. Right. And they can do what you want them to do. But there is also another issue. If I make a nanoparticle in my lab and somebody else makes nanoparticles in their lab, um, are these particles exactly the same? They're probably not, right? Um, so, but there probably is a tolerance. There is a tolerance. Uh, the, but uh, the, they're not identical, but they're, but they're within similar. a range. Yeah, similar. So, uh, but my point is, you know, you can do all the toxicity studies with, and so let's say you tried something, characterize your nanoparticles, tried it in cells, in mice, in dogs, and humans, but that's only one nanoparticle. Right, and you can make, you can change the size, you can change the surface, you can change the core material, and then you would need to repeat all of these studies. <laughs> right, it, it, it seems like a never-ending process. It is a never-ending process, really. And there is one other thing: is so, say I made this particle and I injected it in the body. The moment it gets into the blood, there is so many things attaching to it. Right, there's going to be proteins attached to it. There's going to be lipids attached to it. There's going to be other things that attach to this particle. Particles can aggregate in the blood, and you make a 10 nanometer particle in the lab. It goes to your blood. Now it's 100 nanometers. Right? Um, did that? Did this process change the toxicity of nanoparticles? It can. Right? It might reduce the toxicity, but it might also enhance the toxicity. So that's another layer of complexity. And I assume it's even more complex because everybody's blood is different. That's Every, correct. Everybody that's correct. has a different level of cholesterol. Everybody has exactly. a different level of protein. Exactly. No two people would be identical. There are actually studies. I don't remember the exact details, but um, so there's um, studies in which people have – I believe taken um, blood out of certain people and tried nanoparticles, put them in blood, and um, shown that the surface properties are different depending on the person. So, um, you know, when you put a particle in the blood or any other biological fluid and something attaches to the particle, that's usually known as a particle corona, uh, a corona of proteins around your particle. And now there is a new term called personal corona. So the particle doesn't just have a corona, it has a corona that is related to a person. And if you go from one person to the other, now the personal corona is going to change, which makes toxicity studies so difficult. 
But at the same time, if you know that the corona can change from one person to the other, I guess that also opens up possibilities for other diagnostic right. things you can do. So one thing I want to to clear up uh, as you were talking, I, I was thinking, you know, we're, we're talking about uh, the injecting drugs through nanoparticles. This is different than what we're hearing in popular literature now about uh, getting someone's own immune system to attack uh, various cancers or various diseases. Yes. Yes. I don't want people to conflate the two. The, yes. These yes. are different. It is different. And, and, and what you mentioned is um, you are essentially trying to take someone's immune systems, uh, immune cells out, um, try to engineer those cells, and then inject them back in so that they go and kill cancer cells. There is no particles involved usually. I, I guess there, there are potential ways you could inv- involve nanoparticles in that process. But uh, no, in, in uh, what you mentioned, yes, there is a difference between uh, when, you look, when you take immune cells out and then when you inject particles in. So you have a different approach to, to this uh, nanotechnology in that you obviously are highly competent in, in research and, and your lab, but you also want to tell people about it and educate people about it. You're even considering doing a podcast yes. uh, uh, about this just on nanotechnology. Uh, talk about that. Why, why do you see a need to do that? Um, in my experience, there is there is not enough um, public education in the field, and I think that's a um, a criticism that you can always uh, you know you can always criticize scientists for that because people get into their bubble in their labs and they just don't go out and talk to the public about this. But um, I think when it comes to nanotechnology, public education is really needed. Um, there is there is multiple reasons for this. One is it's just an exciting field with so many different promises, right? Think about the fact that in 1960s, someone just talked about nanotechnology. We didn't have nanoparticles now. Now, 50 years later, I can make nanoparticles in my lab, right? In a short period of time, In a short period of time. Imagine what's going to happen 50 years from now. If you have a seven-year-old today, by the time that person is 57, how many products are going to contain nanoparticles, right? And so the, the, the earlier they learn about nanotechnology, the, the, the easier it will be for them to um, evaluate what they want to do with that product. Do they want to use certain products? What can they do? Uh, what are the promises of the field? So that's, that's one reason. I think just education is needed because of the promise of the field. Um, the other reason is um, with what I mentioned about the potential toxicity of the particles. Mm-hmm. I think the, the public needs to be, be aware of, of the fact that you know these particles are great and there are so many promises, both from a biomedical and from industrial standpoint. There's so many things you can do with them. Right, um, you can now buy socks that have nanoparticles in them. Right, wow. there are so many things that you can do uh, with these particles, but there is always a potential for the particles being toxic. Right, so um, if you are a consumer, it is it all it, it always helps you to at least be aware 
of the fact that there might be some toxicity associated with these things, and you want to be sure to at least be aware of the potential. And and to our example, somebody who has cancer, and this might help them uh, cure or or maybe not cure is the right word, but at least put in remission right. uh, uh, the, the cancer. Uh, they would have to weigh that uh, opposed to I don't know what this would do to my body 10 years from now or 15 years from now. Exactly. And also think about the fact that, you know, we we inhale particles every day, right? We inhale particles probably every minute. Um, And some of these are potentially toxic, could be toxic at least. Um, Is that toxicity different for a normal person compared to a cancer patient? Right, there's just that aspect of it as well, right? But there was, there's also a third thing. So I mentioned about you know the promises of the field and the toxicity associated with particles potentially. But there's also a third thing. If by 2020 we're going to have six million people in the nanotechnology sector, what's going to happen by 2050? I don't even know. But you know, the sooner people learn about the field, I think the better it will be. Right. At some point, we had the dot-com bubble and we had technology and, you know, every young kid would go, would want to learn about um, coding and Internet. And I guess that's still the case. But if but if the nanotechnology sector is going to expand at the rate that it is expanding, the sooner you can tell young kids and teenagers about the field, the better they have, uh, the better is their prospect to go into the field and really really change the the field and for people out there just lay people listening uh, think of the progress we've had in uh, media and uh, the fact that cell phones are still relatively in their infancy yeah. tablets are are a new kid uh, on the block uh, and if you look at what has occurred over the last five years, 10 years, 15 years, it's been an explosion right. uh, that has changed our lives. You're, you're equating nanotechnology in the same way. I think so, yeah. I think it is. It is it, it and is so the similar. more you know about it, the more you can possibly uh, use it or hone it for your benefit. Exactly, exactly. Well, best of luck with your podcast. Thank we, you. We, we can't wait to, to help you with that. Thanks. And thank you so much for talking with us. Sure. I really appreciate it. Thank you for the opportunity. Today, we've been talking with Dr. Amir Farnood of the Russ College of Engineering and Technology at Ohio University about the exploding field of nanotechnology. Spectrum is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hudson. Please subscribe to Spectrum. You can do that at any of your favorite podcast outlets, such as Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or on your NPR One app. If you have questions or comments about any of our podcasts, you can direct them to me by email. That's at hudson at ohio.edu. Hodson, H-O-D-S-O-N, at ohio.edu.